1: I always like it when uh, when Scripture states something plainly. It's uh, uh, it's not always the case. Sometimes Scripture takes a lot of understanding and, and digging deep. But every so often, you get a passage. that it just it's so clear. There's no way to kind of get around it. Um, and and wh- I want to read a passage to start this morning. It's in uh, 1 Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse five. And I I think it just it captures. Uh, the heart really of, of what we are, we are doing here. Every morning, every Sunday morning, when we come to gather as a, as a church and to, to study our Father's word, what is the point? What is the purpose of all that? And uh, I love how verse five puts it. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's just, it's that simple. Why we're, we're studying Father's word isn't to just be smarter. It's not just to know more and be scholarly and so forth. The goal is that we would be able to love better. And that love is coming from a sincere faith. It's coming from a good conscience. It's coming from a pure heart. That's where it's all coming from. And But what's interesting is, is Paul goes on to write in verse six, he says, for some men straying from these things, have turned aside the fruitless discussion. So instead of making it about learning to love one another better, Paul says, what some people have done is they've taken our father's word and they've turned it into a a fruitless discussion, he says. And he's, he's clear now in verse seven, he says, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either which they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So instead of, capturing the heart of what God's doing, what they want to do is they want to make it about the law and they want to make it about rules and and principles and how you're supposed to live and and so forth. And and they're missing the point, making these confident assertions, not fully understanding or grasping what they're talking about. Verse eight, but we know that the law is good, right? The, The Mosaic law, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's God's law. He gave it to us. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And that's, that's the key there, right? For example, we know Pepsi is good if you use it properly to scrub the rust off of metal, right? That's what it's for. And, and so if we use it properly, it's good. And that's the sense here, understanding that law is good, but you need to use it properly. Well, what's, how does one use it properly? Verse nine, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person who hears righteous. If you're in Jesus, you're righteous. That's it. That's that's all it takes. We've been made righteous, justified by faith. So the law is not made for the church. It's not made for believers, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law is made for the world. It's made for the unbelievers. And that's really critical for us to understand because we've been camping out here in Genesis chapter 15 for a number of weeks, trying to understand this covenant that God made with Abram, right? We're trying to understand this, this idea of whatever is a covenant to begin, to begin with, right? That it's a binding agreement, one that's not easily broken. In fact, often with covenants is broken under the pen- penalty or curse of death. That's how bad it is. In fact, there are times where, where, where people have killed members of their own family because they broke a covenant. And it brought such shame to the family that the only way to get rid of that shame was to kill the people in their own family. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a right thing. I'm just trying to share with you the significance and power of what covenant is. But what's happened is you made this binding agreement between two parties as to how they're going to interact with one another, what they're gonna owe one another, how they're gonna treat one another. And the fact that God, as we saw in Genesis 15, entered into a covenant on his own volition is incredible because he didn't need to. He could have simply said to, to Abram, my yes is yes, my no is no, deal with it. Trust me, accept it by faith. Instead, he entered into a covenant to bind himself to a promise he made to Abram. And what's really incredible is what did he require of Abram? Nothing but to believe, that's it. There weren't stipulations and requirements placed on Abram beyond trust, believe, That's simple. And and so we've been seeing then is that covenant in chapter 15 is actually what we call the new covenant today. And that's what we were trying to unpack and understand. The problem is what's happened in the church is it's gotten all muddied because there's there's another covenant, right? God's gonna make another covenant 430 years later with a guy named Moses or through a, a man named Moses called the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And what's happened is the church has taken that, the law, the old covenant, and they're using it improperly now within the church. And so what ends up happening is the old gets mixed with the new. And remember the parable Jesus told about the wine and the wineskins? And you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And the reason is because that new wine, when it ferments, it will begin to expand and the old wineskins has already been stretched. It can't contain it. It can't hold it. So you can't put the new into the old. You have to put the new into the new. And that's what the new covenant, it can't fit into the old covenant. The old covenant can't contain the new. But what's happened to a lot of a lot of churches, a lot of Christians is they've muddied the two, they've mixed the two, and we haven't understood the purpose of the law. We haven't understood how to use it properly. Instead, what happens <clears throat> is we we get into trouble now trying to 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 live out of one and live out of the other, back and forth. So, for example, what often happens is is salvation is by grace through faith. Just got to trust Jesus doesn't matter what you've done, who you did it with, how many times you did it, come just as you are and accept by faith and you're saved by grace. And we celebrate that and we're excited about that. And then the bait and switch happens. Well, now that you've been saved by the new covenant, here's the old to follow. And the old covenant now becomes the rule book and you need to follow that old covenant. You gotta follow the rules and the principles and and even some churches add some other rules and principles onto that and we've lost the glory and the freedom that comes from the new. And we're not using it properly, realizing that the law is not made for the righteous person. And really that, that's what happened in, in the churches of Galatia. Turn to with me to Galatians chapter three. <coughs> Paul speaks pretty boldly and directly to this, these churches here after laying out to them at the end of chapter two, how we've been set free from the law and that righteousness comes by faith. Otherwise Christ would have died needlessly. He begins chapter three and verse one. He says, you foolish Galatians. My favorite translation of this, by the way, is a J.B. Phillips. It says, oh, you dear idiots. Dear, dear idiots, but idiots nonetheless, right? You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who's, who's, Who's tricked you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How were you saved? Was it because you did all these good things? Good works, you gave, you showed up to church, you memorized scripture, is that what it took? No, how were you saved? You were saved by grace through faith. You were saved by putting your trust in what the spirit has done. So he asked, there's one thing I want to find out. Did you receive the spirit by the works of law or by hearing with faith? You can almost hear the Galatians sheepishly answering by faith, by the spirit. And then he hits them. Verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it is in vain? So then does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. You see, the reality is we have to understand is it's always been about faith in Christ. It's always been about his grace. And so this morning, what we wanna do is we wanna expose this error of going back and forth to the old and the new by contrasting the old and the new, and more importantly, trying to understand and grasp what is the new covenant. So I'm super excited for us this morning because we're going to study some Old Testament passages that are some of my favorite. And hopefully you will see the freedom and the power that is yours today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are calling upon your name and your power this morning. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look into your word and we're going to try to understand this new covenant. We're going to try to understand life in you. And quite frankly, we can't understand that apart from you. And apart from what you're going to show us. So, Lord Jesus, we invite you to be the teacher, to take these words, take your scriptures, and provide life to us. And again, that the goal would be that we would learn to trust you, we would learn to walk with you, we would learn to experience your life and your power as we love one another even better. In your name we pray, amen. All right, this morning, we're going to start in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. So you can turn to Deuteronomy 6 if you want. But the word Deuteronomy is literally second law. It's the law all over again. And, and what happens here is Moses at the very end of his life. He's, <coughs> they've wandered the wilderness for 40 years now. And, uh, and they're about to enter into the promised land, but Moses isn't going to go with them. And so he's gathered together all of Israel and he's, he's going to read to them the law a second time. It's a reminder. And so really what we're seeing here in the book of Deuteronomy, it's a, it's a covenant ceremony. In fact, if you were to to kind of go through other covenant ceremonies that are recorded around that time, it would look very similar here where they bring them together and they explain the context of why they made a covenant. And then they detail the rules of the covenant. And then they detail the blessings and the curses of the covenant. All of that is being laid out for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And so it really is just a a book of covenant here. And what I love here in, in Deuteronomy chapter six if you kind of glance over it really quickly here, we've got that famous prayer in verse four. This is a prayer that probably every good little Jewish boy would start learning right from the beginning. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Hear that you shall. Right? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and, and shall talk with them when they sit in their house and when you walk by the way and when they lie down and rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and on they, sh- they shall be on the frontals of your doorhead. You shall write the forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that you shall, you shall, you shall repeated over and over and over again. Who's the burden resting on? You. This is what you need to do. And that's really the nature of this covenant that Moses is reading to him. The old covenant, the law, the burden is on the hearer. The burden is on the doer. You shall do all these things. And then he kind of summarizes it in verse 23. Moses writes to them, he says, he he, being God brought us out of Um, out of there, from there, speaking of Egypt, in order to bring us in, into the promised land, into Canaan, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. Remember, that's what we've been looking at. In Genesis 15, he swore the land. that's what he's referring to here. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord, our God, for our good always, and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe some of the commandment. Is that what it says? It will be righteousness to you if you do your best. It's not what it says. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. There are 613 commands that the theologians have been able to dictate, including in those 613 are the the moral law or the 10 commandments, right? Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not bear false witness. Those are the the moral commandments that theologians like to divide it up with. And then you have the, (coughs) the civil commandments in terms of what happens if your oxen breaks loose into your neighbor's field and tears it up. Well, what do you owe them? Right or, or if someone gets hurt in an accident, well, what do you owe them? And so they have all these, these civil laws of how they interact with one another. And then they have the ceremonial laws. It's about feasts and about not wearing mixed fibers and clothing and, and what you're allowed to eat and so forth. So they have all these 613 commands. And, and as a good young Jewish man or, or woman, it was your job to do it all perfectly all the time. And if you did, sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses tells you 12 verses of blessings, right? You'll be the head, not the tail. You alone, you won't need to borrow. Your, Your children will be blessed. You'll always have crops in the field. You'll always do well. 12 verses of blessings, hallelujah. But if you don't, beginning in verse 14, if you fail, and you don't do it all perfectly, you will get 55 verses of curses. You will be the tail, not the head. You will borrow and not loan. Your crops will not be in the field. You'll have drought, your animals will die. Your kids will not be good and the Leafs will never win the sound of the cup. All those things, it's in there, I think, right? All those things, 55 verses of curses. That's what's there. That was the pressure of this covenant. And what was Israel's response? We'll do it. That's right. Next is 24, seven. The first time the covenant was read to them, the response was all that the Lord has spoken. We will be obedient. Well, we keep reading scripture and the next thousand years of of, of, uh, recorded scripture for us details Israel's total failure to keep the law. they've worshiped other gods and idols. They neglected to offer the sacrifices and offerings to God. They took credit for their own successes, denying God's role, failing to honor and worship him. And when they did remember to worship him, often it was just with empty words. They were just going through the motions. Their heart was not in it. They lived in a way that was indistinguishable from the other nations surrounding them. They failed to care for the poor and needy. Instead, they pursued their own greed and self-importance. They would lie, cheat, steal from one another to get ahead. And if they remembered God, it was probably only to use him as a means to something else. And at one point they forgot the law altogether. It just completely vanished until King Josiah found it and rediscovered it again. They weren't that obedient. The crazy thing, God wasn't surprised by any of it. Because in Deuteronomy 31, after Moses has read to them the covenant, he's reminded them of the curses, the blessings and, and all that's been laid out for them. God speaks to Moses and says, listen, this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna break my covenant. They're gonna fail. He totally understood that because here's the thing we haven't understood about the law. The law was not meant to be the guidebook. It was not meant to be the path of how to live, how to live righteously and how to do everything right. And if you just followed it, everything would be great. He understood that's not what's going to happen. See Romans 5 20, it says that God gave the law so that the transgression would increase. You see, if the law was given to control sin, or reduce sin, and that way everyone's doing what's right and avoiding what's wrong, then you would see the transgression to go down. But God's intention in adding the law was not to reduce sin. It was not to reduce the the transgression. It was actually to make it worse. See, that's what we haven't understood about the law, is that the law has got really three purposes. Romans 7, 7 tells us the first one, it's to define sin. Paul says, I didn't know coveting was a sin until the law said, do not covet. Because do you understand what, what people like to do is they like to find all kinds of excuses. They like to justify all kinds of behaviors. If you ever watched that, the, the movie Fiddler on the Roof, there's a great scene in there where, where all the, the, the young Jewish men are, are coming up to the rabbi and they're asking him questions about, do we have to pay taxes to, to, the, to the czar, right? To the Russian king and, and the government. Do we have to do all that? And the, the rabbi, he's, he's trying to figure out a way. He goes, well, on one hand, Rabbi Mishnah says this. Ah, but on the other hand, Rabbi Torah says this. And he's, he's going back and forth and he's, he, they're trying to justify. And do you understand that's what people do? Right, We find reasons to justify our actions and behavior. And so God says, let's be clear what sin is. Thou shalt not covet. That's a sin. And so Paul, now knowing that coveting is a sin, that's what the law was due to define sin. But again, it wasn't to make it smaller. It was to make it worse. That's what Paul goes on to discover in Romans 7, verses eight to 10. He says, now knowing coveting was a sin, And in desiring to be the good young Christian I was, I said, if I don't covet, I'll be great. Because think about it, coveting leads to so many other sins, right? It leads to murder, leads to adultery, leads to lying, leads to cheating and so forth. So if I just master not coveting, I've kind of wiped most of the sins off the board. But what he discovered was the more he thought about not coveting, the more he coveted. He had every kind of covetous desire because he's discovered that the law doesn't control sin. It inflames it. It's like seeing a little fire and thinking, I know how to put this out. Let's add some gasoline to it. And that was God's intention. It wasn't to make it a smaller flame. It was to make it a bigger flame. Why? Because God needed to show us that no matter what you and I do, it would never be enough. You and I could never master sin, which is the third purpose of the law. told for us in Galatians 3, 23 to 25, where Paul writes to us is that the law was to be our, our pedagogos. Remember Robin talking about pedagogos last week? That teacher and that pedagogos, that governor was meant to be the one, not to for salvation, but to lead you to Jesus for salvation. And that's what the law would do. And it would do it by constantly pointing out all your failures. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that good to know, Chuck, that someone's around to point out your failures over? No, no, no. <laughs> I didn't want to go there. So I'm glad you went there tomorrow. I'm... Right? It's... That's what the law is doing. Just constantly fail, 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 fail to lead you to Jesus for salvation, for righteousness, for justification. But now that you've got Jesus, now that faith has come, you don't need the law because the law is not made for a righteous person. It's made for the unbeliever to lead him to Jesus, to become righteous. And so that's what we have now. So Romans 6, 14, for you shall not be under law, but you're under grace. And therefore sin won't master us anymore. We're not under old and new. We're not mixing the two. They're completely different covenants all together. And what we've been seeing here is that that covenant is the very promise that Abram got in Genesis 15. It was always the plan. It was always the intention of God, this new covenant. And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna focus on, on two Old Testament passages that prophesy what this new covenant's going to be. What in in the Old Testament is prophesying what's to come. You and I though, living under this time post-cross, it is the time right now because the cross is the dividing line, right? The new covenant didn't begin in Matthew 1.1. It began on the cross at Jesus's death. That's when the will was enacted. That's when the inheritance was released. So that's the beginning of it. And since we're post-cross it's true of us today, but turn in your Bibles with me to Jeremiah Chapter 31. So if you kind of open your Bible in the middle, you'll find Isaiah probably, and it's to the right. So Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Right. So again, this is before the cross. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of, out of, by my hand to bring them out, out into the land. Sorry. Let me read that again. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So the covenant I'm going to make is not like the Mosaic covenant. It's not like the you shall covenant. That's not what it's gonna be. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will remember their iniquity and their sin for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Look at the language. The law, the old covenant Mosaic was you shall but the new covenant is I will. Where's the burden now? It's on God. I will do all this. And the intimacy that's going to come from this. There's no longer a mediator. See, what was interesting is when it came time for Moses enter into that covenant, the people of Israel were afraid. God invited them up on the mountain and they said, Moses, this is terrifying. We can't, we can't go up there. It's too scary. So you go and speak to God on our behalf and then you speak to us and we'll speak to, Mo- to you and you speak to God. And they had someone in between. And God says, no more. No, from the least to the greatest, all will know me. Isn't that good news? You don't have to be Pastor Greg to have some kind of special access to God. You got the same access as as Pastor Josh and and the same access as Sue. He's right there. All will know me. This intimacy, this relationship here now. But what's interesting is there's a, a change. You see, the you shall was all about behaviors and external. This is what you shall do and how you shall behave. But now he says, I'm going to write that law on their heart. He's going to do something different within us. And instead of it being an external covenant, it's going to be one of internal change. Instead of being about focusing on your behavior, God says, I'm going to change your character. See, the problem with the old covenant was not the commands. Right? Paul says that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It's of God. It's the nature of God. In many ways, you could read the old covenant. You could read specifically the, the, the 10 commandments as a way to understand who God is. God says, don't murder. Why? Because he's not a murderer. Don't steal because God's not a thief. Don't lie because God's not a liar. See, when when Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, all have broken the law and come short of what? The glory of God. The law was telling us the glory of God, who God is, his character. There's nothing wrong with the law. It just lacks the power to make it happen. That's the problem. The problem is you and me. I can't live up to that law. I can't live up to that standard because see, something happened in the garden. When Adam sinned, he plunged all of mankind under the dominion of sin. We became sinners by nature. There is something now fundamentally flawed with the heart of man. So in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart of man is deceitful, is wicked, is, is beyond cure. That's the state of our heart before we knew Jesus. As, as, as uh, God says in Genesis six, the heart of man was continually towards evil. That's because of the fall. Something had fundamentally changed. We were now slaves to sin. And so the new covenant can't just change external uh, factors or behaviors. It's gotta come rescue us and changes from within. So let me turn to the other passage and it's Ezekiel. So go a couple books to the right. Ezekiel 36. And this this might be my favorite Old Testament passage because of how clear and how powerfully it speaks to the new covenant. So Lord, make it real to us. Verse 25, Ezekiel writes this, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is God speaking again of the new covenant right? And, and what's the cleaning water? What do we know now? Because again, they're looking forward to the coming of the covenant. We're looking back. What do we know was the cleansing agent to wash you of all your filthiness? The blood of Jesus, his death in the cross. It washed you clean. It washed you pure. Look how he says, "I will I will sprinkle clean water on you." That's the blood of Jesus to wash you clean. You will be clean. Literally, the word is pure. Not sort of. Not kind of. Not we'll pretend you are. You are pure and clean because He has washed you clean. Now, what a lot of people says, "Well, this is the atonement." No. No, this is not the atonement, nor is it a covering. A lot of people will all say, well, that's covered by the blood of Jesus. Please understand the blood of Jesus did not atone or cover a single sin. See, atonement and covering are Old Testament words. They speak to what lambs and goats did. All they could do, they were, they were the atoning sacrifice. They were the covering sacrifice. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of lambs and goats could never take away sin. All it could do for a time was cover it and just wait and just wait and just wait. It's like having a a big pile of junk in your front yard. And all you do is you throw a tarp over top and it's a green tarp. So it kind of looks like just a, a hill of grass now, right? So you just throw this tarp over there. The problem is it's covered, but it's still there. But Jesus didn't atone any sins. He didn't cover any sins. Remember when John the Baptist saw him? Behold the lamb of God who covers the sin. No, takes it away. That's so much better. That's so much better because that junk pile that you've been hiding, that you've been trying to cover over, God says, I got it. And he comes and he takes it away and he moves it as far as the East is from the West. Now think about that for a second. Because if he said north, south, that's different. Because if I go north, eventually I hit the North Pole and I keep going, which direction am I going now? I hit the South Pole and I keep going, which direction am i going now? So the distance between north and south is at least the diameter of the earth or at least, or maybe half the circumference, but it's measurable. But if I go east, how long am I going east for? And if I go west, How am I going west for? What's the distance between east and west? Bigger than you can imagine. And he said, I will separate you. I will remember your sins no more. I won't throw them in your face, Craig. I I won't beat you up and manipulate you and guilt trip you. That's not what I'm going to do. They're gone. That sin, John, that you're thinking about, took it away. It's a big truck, but took it away. He needed multiple dump trucks for me, so. But that's, the New Testament word is propitiation. Say it with me. Propitiation. It's a much better word. It's gone. All of your sin is gone. The only person that's going to bring your sin and throw it in your face is the enemy. And when he does, because you can't stop him from doing it, you can say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking that away. Thank you for washing me clean. Thank you for making me pure. Hallelujah. Sadly, many Christians think that's the gospel, but that's the new covenant which is why now they, they mess in or, or, or bring back the old because it's great to be forgiven. That's taking care of my past. But what about now? What do I do today? How do I live? And that's where well-meaning, but people not understanding, making confident assertions, even though they don't know what they're saying, say, well, here's the rule book. Here's the law. Here are the principles that you now need to live by. And so you're forgiven, but we go back to the law. And what we didn't understand, there's more. I love verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. First word, my translation says, moreover. It's almost like he's saying, don't stop reading. There's more. It's like an infomercial, right? 29.99, but there's more. There's better things than just the forgiveness of sins. Well, what's more, verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you see it? See, again, a lot of pastors have, have used Jeremiah 17, 9 to say, you see, you got a wicked heart. Your heart is bad. You can't trust your heart. It's in the Bible. It's true, it was, but keep reading. Because in Ezekiel, it tells me what God's done on the cross is something dramatic. It's life-changing. He's going to remove that heart of stone to give me a new heart. Well, the the best commentary on scripture is scripture itself. And in Romans chapter six, verses six and seven, Paul tells us in greater detail what was prophesied through Ezekiel. And he says in verse six, knowing this, I love that. These are the facts. This is simply the news. This isn't based on your feelings. It's not based on your experience. This is the absolute truth because God did it. Knowing this, the old self, the old you was crucified with Christ. The old Ursula is gone. Crucified with Christ on that cross. Jesus didn't die alone on that cross. You and I were in him. And so when he was crucified, my old sinner, no good, rotten heart, spirit was crucified with Christ. Amen. Right? Was gone, crucified with Christ, no longer lives. Knowing this, the old self was crucified with him so that sin wouldn't be your master anymore. Sin would be rendered powerless. Sin couldn't control you anymore. And so what's happened is on the cross, God did something to change me. As wonderful as forgiveness of sins is, it doesn't change who I am. But the the, the cross changed my heart. It changed my nature. It removed the heart of stone, that wicked heart. And in its place, I was born again. You were born again with a new heart, a new spirit. Again, go back to the parable of the wineskins, right? God wants to give you something new, but he can't put it in the old because the old can't contain it. See, what God really wants to do is he wants to put his spirit in you, but his spirit can't fit in your old spirit. So he takes it away and gives you a new spirit, a new wineskin that the new wine, the new life, the spirit can now go inside of. And that's verse 27. God writes, I will put my spirit within you. I remember studying this passage years ago and, and I was reading through it really quickly. And sometimes we are—we often do in scripture, right? We just kind of read it really quickly and we don't really pause. And so I, I just read, I will put my spirit within you. And God said, read it again. Okay, I'll put my spirit within you. And no, 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 Ross, read it again slowly. Okay, God, you're speaking here. And you said that you're gonna put your spirits in me. I'll never find words to adequately express the significance of that simple truth. The God of the universe who created all of this, who is, who is so massive that the universe fits in the span of his hands, that all powerful, all knowing, all loving spirits has taken up permanent residence in little itty bitty old me not some of him not part of him he says my spirit my life is gonna take a permanent residence permanent abode within you that's why that's why there's no distance between he and I anymore all will know him because all who Confess his name. All who will put their trust in him, the spirit of the God Himself will come and take up permanent residence within. Right now, the God of the universe lives inside of you. That's why it's Christ and Megan, not just Megan. Christ and Megan. That's who she is. No matter where she goes, no matter what she's doing, she's always Christ and Megan. Incredible. Dina, you carry the spirit of the living God inside you. You never have to ask, God, be with me. It's like, head, will you please come with me on my trip today? Like it's attached, it's there. The spirit's in you. He's never leaving nor forsaking you all the time. And you can't get any closer because you're now one with him. It's 1 Corinthians 6. I'm one spirit united with him. But here's the crazy part. God came to take up residence inside of you and me to do something. He's not sitting back in a lazy boy chair, sipping on iced tea, kind of watching the the parade of life go by. He actually came to do something. So let's read verse 27 again. In Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, make you walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's going to cause us to live a new way. Again, the best commentary on scripture is scripture itself. So turn with me to Romans chapter seven. And Paul's speaking about the law in particular, speaking to Jews after he's he's made some statements about the law, talking about how the law was added so the transgression would increase. In Romans 6, 14, he says that sin shall not be our master because we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. So now he's going to speak to people who are struggling with that idea, that concept. And so he begins in chapter seven, verse one, or do you not know brethren? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, speaking to those who are holding on to the law, who believe that law is going to be their, their sanctification. That the law is jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Jurisdiction is rulership, dominion. Right, The law has dominion and rulership over a person until they die is what it says. Now he's going to illustrate that. He's not going to go into a sermon on what marriage is or isn't supposed to be. He's going to illustrate it through marriage in verses two and three. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies and she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. It's simple, basically saying, husband and wife, how long are they married for? Till death do us part. And as long as the husband's alive and she goes and she's joined to another man, that's called what? Adultery. But if the husband dies, she's free to go marry someone else. Simple, right? Well, now he's going to apply it in verse four. He's going to apply it, except now we're the ones who is the wife and we're the one that's going to die. See what, read verse four with me. Therefore, my brethren, the application of this illustration, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So we saw in Romans 6, six, right? Knowing this, that you were crucified with Christ. You died to sin in, in chapter six. Here in, verse, in chapter seven, we're learning that we died to the law the moment you die, the law lost its jurisdiction. It lost its power over you. Think of it this way. Suppose Willem's in his cruiser and he's chasing after a criminal. You know, they did something horrible, robbed the bank maybe, or or mowed down little ladies. I don't know, but they're on a high-speed pursuit now. It went dark real quick. I know. I didn't see it coming either. So, so they're in the high-speed pursuit and Willem's chasing him, but the, the, the criminal loses control of the car, smashes it into a light post, and dies instantly. Does Willem get out of his cruiser, arrest the criminal, put him in the back of his cruiser, read his rights? Is that what he does? Why not? The moment the criminal died, Willem lost jurisdiction over him. Can't touch him anymore, right? That's what Paul's saying here in Romans seven. The moment you and I died with Jesus, the law broke or lost its jurisdiction over side of you. The marriage that we had with the law ended. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. You and I were crucified with Christ. It goes on in verse four to say this, Uh, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Who's the other? to Jesus, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh before salvation, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Didn't tamp them down, didn't control it, just made it worse. We're at work at the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now something's changed. Salvation, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, born again, resurrected with Christ, with a new heart and new spirit. But now having been released from the law, having died to that which, by which we were bound so that we serve, we still serve, we still do, we still act, but we serve now in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of a letter. It's not a rule book. It's not a principle that we follow. It's a person. Let me, let me illustrate it to this way. I, I had this great Tiger Woods illustration all lined up and then Robin used it on me last week. Totally. So I got to come up with another one. So imagine last night we had a party, it was a great party. And let's suppose you want to show up at the party with this incredible dessert. Like, I mean, over the top dessert, like just crazy Kind of dessert and so you grab the the martha stewart cookbook and you flip through all the pages and you find the most complicated dessert in there and think like, i'm gonna do this and so you get the recipe book out and you start to follow the instructions the problem is you've never baked a thing in your life you've burnt water right like it's just it's not gone well for you in the kitchen but you're determined. And so you start reading the instructions. They say, grab the ingredients, put them in the bowl, fold the eggs inside of that. And you're thinking, fold them? That's laundry. Uh, I don't know what that means. So I don't know. Maybe I just put the whole egg in, right? And so you just egg shell and everything, just put it in there, right? And you're just just doing your best, following the instructions. How good is that going to go? Not very good because it's all on you. You shall be the baker. You shall do this. But what if you had the option of Martha Stewart in your kitchen? Imagine Martha Stewart herself, the author of the cookbook, the the professional, the expert walks into the kitchen and you're sitting there, Martha, you're here. And she says, I'm here to cook with you. I'm here to bake with you. I'm here to do it with you. And you say, this is great. And you just go right back to the cookbook. How much sense does that make? Wouldn't it it be better to say, okay, Martha, what's next? What does it mean to fold in the eggs? Help me understand that because that doesn't make sense to me. And she would teach you and she would do it with you. That's the new covenant. You see, God doesn't say, here's the book. I'm going to be over here. Follow the recipe. It should be laid out pretty clearly. He says, no, no, let's, let's do it together. Now, Please understand. I'm not saying ignore scripture. We're studying and we're reading from scripture and we're learning from scripture. But the point of scripture is to point us to Jesus. And so we're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to cook with Jesus. And he and I together are in the kitchen and we're doing life together. Right now, it's me and Jesus up here speaking to you. And when when you go home, it's it's you and Jesus at home. You see, that's what he's longing for. That's what he's craving. So I thought about all this and, and this God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. And I'm looking at this deal going, God, what do you get out of? I see what I get out of it. I get a new heart. I get forgiveness. I get righteousness. I get a whole new future. I got a new spirit. I got your spirit. I got power. I got hope. I got freedom. I got joy. What do you get? What do you want out of all this? Well, back in Ezekiel 36, verse 28, God says this, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. So you know what he wants? He wants you. Paul quotes this idea, this, this passage in 2 Corinthians 6. All God's ever wanted is to be your God, to be for you to be his people, to dwell with you and I, to live with you and I. That's what he wants. He wants to be the one that we trust in, the one that we turn to the one that we walk through life with, that the one that we journey through life with and we face these challenges and these difficulties or even the good times, we celebrate with him. He wants to be the one that we call upon in times of trouble, the one that we worship and that we praise and we glorify. That's what he wants. And so the question is, will we, will we offer that to him in all parts of life? not just when we come here on a Sunday morning or when you're engaged in some some activity, but throughout life, in your leisure time, at work, when you're in the kitchen, when you're cleaning up and doing chores, when you're you're in Costco or Walmart because Lord needs you, need it there, right? Like whenever you are, will you cook with Jesus? Will you walk with Jesus? Will you live with him? Will you turn to him? People say, well, how do I do that? And it's as simple as saying, God, I invite you into this moment. I invite you to show me how to love people, how to respond, what to say, what not to say. What do we do next? And we have this conversation with Jesus who's not so distant, not so far, but dwelling inside of you. That's where his spirit is. Isn't that good news? Let me, let me close with one more passage from Isaiah. And it'll be kind of a benediction and of sorts, I guess, in Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse eight, sorry, 41. Beginning in verse eight. Again, God's speaking. He says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend or what we saw about this word, my friend, it's a covenant word because when he's calling Abram, Abraham, his friend, he's invoking the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 15. And so he's speaking to this, this, remember the covenant, I made with my friend, Abraham and your descendants of him. And we saw a few weeks ago that you and I are the true descendants of Abraham. We're the true Israel. Right? Not all Israel is Israel because the way into this spiritual Israel, the way into the covenant is not because you had the right genetics. It was the same way Abraham got into it, which is by faith. So he's speaking to you and I. Hear those words. Verse nine, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, all over the world, right? We got people from Colombia and from Russia and from Ukraine and and from uh, even, you know, Quebec, right? I mean, we got people from all over, right? All over the world. It's a weird place, Quebec, right? So you whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not rejected you. And verse 10, do not fear for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the new covenant. That's what you and I possess today. Let's pray, Lord God. Thank you. Gratitude. So, we sang this morning. We're overwhelmed by what you've done on our behalf and for us. We could never do it on our own. We could never be good enough. We could never cook properly enough. But you have come and you rescued us. You redeemed us. You washed us clean. We're pure. All of our sins, even the future ones, have already been dealt with. And you've given us a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature. We're not the same old people. And that new spirit is so good, so clean, it can actually house your spirit now. It could be joined to your spirit or one with you. And now living inside of us, Lord, you will cause us to walk in your ways. You will lead us. You will guide us. You will empower us. You will strengthen us. You will uphold us with your righteous right hand. And all that you ask of us is that we call upon your name, to trust you, seek you, to let you be God, so that we can be your people. Hallelujah. And all God's people said, Amen.
0: You have been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.